The following message is by Pastor Jason Polly. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at www.harmonybible.org. Well, good morning. Welcome once again to Harmony Bible Church. It's my pleasure to welcome you all here this morning. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace. God, I just pray and ask that you'd be with us now, that as we look to you toward your word, that you would guide us through it, that you would allow us to worship you in spirit and in truth. God, I pray for the churches that are meeting up and down the coast and around the world this morning. God, that they too would worship you in spirit and in truth. God, that your word would be proclaimed, that the gospel would be proclaimed, and that lives would be changed. And God, even as I pray that, I pray that our lives would be changed as we interact with you this hour. God, I just pray and ask that you would change us, mold us, and make us into the people that you want us to be, people that reflect the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in His name. Amen. So today we continue our journey through the book of Colossians. As we look at Colossians 1, verses 9-14, through the book of Colossians is written to a church who maybe has some struggles that they're about to go through. And Paul writes to them with a word of encouragement at the beginning, and then he addresses some theological uh, issues. He gives them a firm theological foundation on which to stand. We don't really know all of the issues that they were facing, but we get a, a glimpse of it from what he teaches them, from what he shows them in the first couple of chapters. And as we work our way through the book of Colossians, that will become more and more evident. But seeing as though we're in the early stages, I don't need to lay that much of a foundation. It will become evident to us as we work through it. So today we're going to look at Colossians 1, verses 9-14. through And if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Colossians 1, verses 9-14. through For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to God the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So, I've only got ten pages of notes. So we're going to jump right into our first point in our sermon outline. The first point is, a life of awareness. A life of awareness. We're talking about a God-honoring life. And what does a God-honoring life look like? Well, Paul's first point is, it's a life of awareness. Look at verse 9 with me. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This section begins with, For this reason. The reason that Paul is referring to is found in verses 3-8 through in last week's message. The news that he had received from Epaphras. Epaphras came to him and said, I have this news about these believers in Colossae and, and, and I want you to know that they're growing in their faith in Christ and their love for the saints. And Paul says, for this reason, I've been praying for you. He says, 
From the day that he heard this marvelous report until the writing of this letter, he had not ceased to pray for them. And at first glance, this might seem like an odd thing to say. Uh, He says, since I heard this marvelous report, I'm praying for you. Many of us gather on Tuesday nights, right? And we, we gather for prayer meeting. And most of our time in prayer meeting is spent praying for those who are sick or those who are going through difficult circumstances or some sort of trial or those who are struggling spiritually. And those are not bad things to pray for. Those are good things to pray for, and we should pray for individuals in those situations. But here, Paul seems to say, ever since the day I heard of your spiritual vitality, I have not ceased to pray for you. While this might not be our practice all the time, it should be. Paul knew that so long as such reports were coming in, their adversary, the the devil, was walking around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. See, the church in Colossae had stepped out in faith and they were serving the Lord. And in so doing, they had painted a giant target on their backs. The other night at uh, community group, Mark, Big Mark, was saying, uh, because now we have this big and bigger Mark, Bigger Mark, right, was talking about how every soldier needed to learn light awareness. Because if they're on the battlefield at night, any light, whether it's from a a cigarette or a flashlight or whatever, that light will draw fire. Because it shows the enemy where that individual is. And in the same way, anyone who reflects the light of Jesus in this world draws fire from the God of this world, the devil. And the more light he reflects, the more fire he's going to draw. So Paul says, in essence, since I heard this report that you are reflecting the light of Christ, my words, not Paul's words, that since I heard this report about your spiritual vitality, I have not ceased praying for you. See, Paul was keenly aware of the dangers facing the believers in Colossae. And the content of the prayer that follows reveals the nature of some of his concerns. See, it seems that Satan was using false teachers to try to derail the faith of those people in Colossae, those believers in Colossae. And while we don't have any indication that they were actually having a major impact on these believers, Paul's writing to make sure this doesn't happen. It's a kind of a preemptive strike. He says, before this becomes an issue, I want to address this and I want to lay this foundation, this theological footing that you can stand on. So when error comes, I want you to be able to detect it. So while he doesn't mention specific heresies that were threatening the church, the chapters, the the verses that follow in the chapters really make it easy to deduce, to figure out what the false teachers were saying. Look at verse 9 again with me. Verse 9, he says, For this reason, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul says that in their prayers, he and Timothy are asking the Colossians to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And he says, and in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This phrase, filled with the knowledge of His will, is the first in many clues that these false teachers were promoting what eventually became known as Gnosticism. And I... As I'm studying this, I I came across several commentaries that said that's not possible, that he's addressing the false doctrine, the false teaching of Gnosticism, because Gnosticism Gnosticism didn't exist until the second century. However, what we see here is an early form of Gnosticism, 
Oftentimes, false teaching doesn't just spring up in its fullness all at once. It, it creeps into the church, and there's, there's veins of false teaching that grow into cults. And that's what happened in the, in the second century. And Paul sees this coming, and he addresses this concern. So I don't want to make this a sermon about Gnosticism, a false belief system. But in general terms, Gnosticism was based on the idea that one could and should obtain a mystical knowledge or an experience that led to a deeper knowledge of spiritual things. And in reality, we say, well, what does this have to do with anything uh, with us living today? In reality, it has a lot to do with where we live today. For there are some, I would argue, even Christian groups that have stepped over the line and are, and are promoting Gnosticism. That are saying you need to have this supernatural, this mystical experience in order to fully know Christ. So Paul uses this letter as an opportunity to stress the sufficiency of Christ and to show his readers that no such mystical knowledge or experience was necessary. See, they'd already received the gift of salvation through the preaching of the Gospel. And they didn't need to look further than that. They did not need to look further than Christ. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18-24, through Paul tells us that the Gospel is the power of God in our lives. He says, don't look for power outside of the Word of God. Look for power in the Word of God, in the Gospel. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18-24 through says this, For the Word of the cross is foolishness to those who are preaching. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has, has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? Made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, through the world, the world through its wisdom, did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, verse 24, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. He says, What you need is the word of the cross, the gospel message, for that is the power of God. That is the wisdom of God. See, spiritual wisdom is given by God to those who are part of His kingdom, and He does so through the word of the cross, through the message of the gospel. And the gospel, by the way, is not not John 3.16. It's not the Romans road. It's the gospel that is contained in this book. It's the entirety of the good news of God. The good news of God is in this book. And he says that is where the wisdom of God comes from. Not in some mystical experience. So Paul's prayer is that instead of seeking some deeper knowledge, they would obtain true spiritual wisdom and understanding. And they would do so in knowing God's will. He's being very purposeful here in his wording. Look at verse 9 again. He says, the word knowledge there is not just the common term gnosis. But instead, it's epignosis, which carries the idea of deep knowledge. It's a favorite word of Gnostics later on. And furthermore, the word filled carries the idea of being filled to completion or being made complete. So Paul, knowing that these false teachers are promising a deeper mystical knowledge, he says, I pray that you may be filled with deep knowledge. Real deep knowledge. Knowledge that will truly make you complete. An awareness or 
knowledge of God's will. And we see this a lot. We see uh, individuals saying, well, I understand, Pastor, but what is God's will for me? What is God's will for my life? Well, 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, verse 3 says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So the will of God is our growth. And then he goes on in that particular verse and says specifically that you abstain from sexual immorality. He's talking about the will of God is that you grow. And we see other, other cases in Scripture where he says the will of God is that you grow in patience. The will of God is that you grow in perseverance. The will of God is that you grow in prayer. The will of God is that you grow. That you become more like Jesus day by day by day. He says, I pray that you may be filled with deep knowledge. Knowledge that will make you complete. Knowledge of the will of God. So having seen that a God-honoring life is a life of awareness, awareness of God's will, we move on to the second point in our sermon outline. The second point is a life of action. Not only is a God-honoring life a life of awareness, awareness of God's will specifically, but it's a life of action. So for me to stand up here and say, you need to know the will of God for your lives. And then for you to not respond to it, to not live it out, is not God-honoring. He says, not only do you need to know this, you need to live it. Look at verses 10 through 11 with me. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Here Paul tells the church in Colossae the reason for his prayer. He says, I'm praying these things so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and to please Him in all respects. This is the same thing that God asked of Abraham in Genesis 17.1. One of the first commandments we see Uh, given to to Abraham, he says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. Same way, he says, so you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and please Him. The idea is one of a life of action, not idleness. A life that is aware of God's will and responds in obedience. There are four things that mark a life of obedience, active obedience in this passage that I want you to see there. Fruitfulness, growth, strength, and endurance. Fruitfulness, growth, strength, and endurance. Now, before we go too far, get too far ahead of ourselves, I want to give a word of warning. I'm not saying that we can somehow produce these things in our lives as a means of honoring God. That, T, you need to honor God. And the way you're going to do that is, T, you need to be fruitful, you need to grow, you need to have strength, and you need to have endurance. And if you do those things, you will somehow honor God. That is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we can produce these things in our own strength and that God will be honored. As we look at them, what I hope you see is that instead of being the means by which we earn grace, they are the, indeed the evidences of grace in our lives. That if the grace of God is in our lives, there will be a fruitfulness. There will be growth. We will have the strength that comes only from Him and we will endure. When I do things in my own strength, it's fruitless. When I do things in my strength, I don't grow. 
When I do things in my own strength, I don't experience God's strength. It's my strength. And I certainly don't endure. For I cannot stand up under the weight of this world. You see, every day that we serve God, it's not like we're paying God back. We become instead further indebted to Him. So if I stand up here and I preach this message, it's not as though somehow God is well pleased with me and says, wow, you know, you did a great job. I died on, I sent my son to die on the cross for you and you preach this message and you're, you're beginning to pay me back. Like, that's really cool. I'm glad that you're paying me back for what I did. You know, it's really appreciative. Instead, if I stand up here and I preach this message, it is only by God's grace that I can stand up here and do so. And at the end of this message, it's not that I've paid God back, I'm further indebted to His grace. I've just received more grace to be able to do it, and now it's like, I owe Him more gratitude. I owe Him more of my life than I did before. We are indebted more and more to God. So while I'm saying that we don't earn God's favor by our efforts, I am saying that we must be diligent to be found in Him. We must be diligent to be found in Him in peace, spotless and blameless. As 2 Peter 3.14 says, or as Deuteronomy 6.17 says, you should diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statutes which He commanded you. So it's not as though we don't do anything. We do work. We apply ourselves towards spiritual growth. But we must remember that it is God who accomplishes these things in us. Listen to the words of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10. Paul says, for I am the least of the apostles. Can you imagine Paul? Right? He wrote 40% of the New Testament. Or four, and he says, I'm the least of the apostles. Um, I, I, I'm not even fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, is what he says. But then he says this, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain. It didn't prove vain. And then he says, But I labored even more than all of them. So he says, It's not me. It's God's grace. But I worked. I put effort into it. I went on those missionary journeys. I labored for Christ. And then he says, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. It was God's grace with me that enabled me to do those things. So as we look at these things, there are evidences of grace in our lives. So without further delay, let's look at each of these marks of a life of action. A life that pleases Him. The first one being fruitfulness. Paul says that a God-honoring life includes fruitfulness. He says, bearing fruit in every good work. In other words, our lives should be fruitful. For as Jesus said, grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? You shall recognize them by their fruit. Or James 3.17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Full of mercy and good fruits. That's wisdom. You want wisdom? You want this deeper knowledge? Be full of good fruits. You need to have knowledge that leads to good fruit. 2 Peter 1, verses 5-8. through Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge, same word, epigenosis, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours, and they are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful 
and the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if these qualities are yours and they're growing, that's fruit. You're being fruitful. Or think of the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Right? I, I often, I'll go through my week and I'll walk around and I'll go, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, the fruit of the Spirit, right? I, I'm at work the other day and my mother comes and she brings these Cadbury cream eggs. I love Cadbury cream eggs. She has two boxes in one pocket and one box in the other pocket. And she gives one box to Greg at work. She gives, and Greg says, no, 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 give them to your son. I don't need them. She goes, oh, i got two boxes for him. So she gives me two boxes. And Greg says, I don't think you'll make it home before those are gone. And I'm going, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Well, within two days, my boxes were gone and Greg's boxes were gone, not because Greg ate his Cadbury cream eggs, but because I ate Greg's Cadbury cream eggs. Right? But the point is that we need to be growing in those things. And I say that to myself because I need to apply all diligence to bear fruit. And that is a fruit I need to work on. And we need to ask ourselves, are we demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit? If somebody looks at you, can they say, that person is marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. Are those things that mark that person's life? And maybe not. But please do not hear me say that if that is not the case, what you need to do is you need to produce those fruits in your life. We've, told, we've talked about this before. John 15, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. What Jesus is saying is, if you don't have self-control, don't walk around saying, I need self-control. In my strength, I'm going to have self-control. What you need to do is you need to turn toward Jesus. If you say, I'm going to be a fruit factory, I just need to produce fruit, I need to produce fruit, I need to produce fruit, you're facing the wrong way. Instead, you need to turn, look to Jesus, and say, I'm just a branch. I'm just a branch and His grace is going to flow through me and produce that fruit. For apart from Him, we can do nothing. So a God-honoring life is a life of fruitfulness. It's one that recognizes that the fruit comes from Him, not from us. Number two, a God-honoring life includes growth. It's a, it's a life of growth. Paul says, increasing in the knowledge of God In other words, our lives should be marked by growth. So if I ask you, are you different today than you were two years ago? And I don't care if you're 25, if you're 4, or if you're 84. You better be more mature, spiritually more mature today than you were two years ago. That's what the Scripture teaches. Our lives should be marked by growth. 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn babies, long for pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. 2 Corinthians 14.20, brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And you say, yeah, 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 I grew, but I really haven't grown that much. Lately, and I'm going to say 1 Thessalonians 4.1, Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do, he says, that you excel still more. So you're walking and you're pleasing God, excel still more. You know, that should be our life's motto. 
excel still more. A God-honoring life includes spiritual growth. Number three, strength. Paul says that the God-honoring life includes being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. In other words, our lives should be marked by strength. Not inner strength, but strength that comes from Him. Not strength that says, not strength that says, you can be anything you want to be. You can do what you want to do. You have the power within you to, to conquer the world. I'm ta- that's worldly strength. I'm talking about strength that comes from God. You know, every week when I do sermon prep, and sometimes I get to this point, much to my shame, sooner rather than later. Hopefully it becomes sooner and sooner in the week, every week. But when I do my sermon prep, I eventually get to a place where I say, God, I cannot do this. I can't. It is completely outside of me. You know, the life of a pastor, I had a pastoral theology professor one time who said, the life of a pastor is always lived between Sundays. And you're always waiting for the next Sunday. And the only time that I'm not like living for next Sunday is right now. As soon as we say amen and I step off this platform, I go, I've got to do that again next week. <laughs> I've got another one. Right? I've got to look to God's Word. I've got to struggle with what it says. I've got to figure out what God's trying to tell me to speak to these people. And I say, I cannot do this. It's an impossible task. But praise God that He works through that, that He, that he uses that. That my strength doesn't come from me. 2 Corinthians 12.9, he says, and he, said, and he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would, will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ will dwell in me. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. See, a God-honoring life is marked by strength. His strength being manifested in our lives. And can you say that you are living day by day in His strength? And number four, endurance. Paul says that a God-honoring life includes endurance. He says steadfastness and patience is what he says here in the text. The essence here is endurance to overcome trials. And he's specifically talking about trials. The words uh, steadfast and patient are closely related, but they do carry a bit of a nuance. So he says steadfast and patient. And they're they're very, very close, but they're a little bit different. The word translated steadfastness refers to being patient in difficult circumstances. And the Greek word translated patience refers to being patient with people, or specifically with difficult people, right? So steadfastness is circumstances. It's the same word we see in Luke 8.15 when uh, Jesus is talking about the parable of the sower and the seed. He says, but the good seed, the seed fell in the good soil, excuse me, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. They bear fruit in spite of the fact that there's trials. There's many, many trials around them, and yet they still bear fruit. And that's what the Christian life is. I would love to tell you that if you receive Jesus Christ, if you serve the Lord, that your life is going to be free from trials. You're just going to live with a big smile on your face, and you're going to go around and everything's going to be happy. Right? Rainbows and unicorns, right? But that's not the Christian life. 
That's not the Christian life at all. Instead, he says, you're going to be steadfast. You need to be steadfast in the midst of difficult circumstances. In other words, difficult circumstances, they will come. They absolutely will come. Romans 5, 3, and not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations. We rejoice knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And then he says, that's, so that's uh, steadfastness or overcoming difficulty, enduring difficult circumstances. Then he talks about patience. He says, steadfastness and patience. Ephesians 4, 2 says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, show tolerance, showing tolerance for one another in love. That sometimes there are people who are just difficult. That sometimes there are people who test our patience. Sometimes there are people in our lives who we have to be patient with, we have to endure, right? And that's okay. God says that in these situations, that's what you are called to do. A God-honoring life is a life that not only is steadfastness in circumstances, but also with people. And I found that some people are good at one and not so good at the other. They say, you know, I can handle whatever comes my way. I can handle the cancer. I can handle the the bills that come. I can handle when my house gets flattened by a tornado. But then my neighbor looks at me funny and I want to choke him. Right? Or just the opposite. Somebody says, I can deal with people, but these things in life, they just weigh me down. Scripture, Paul here says, a God-honoring life is one that includes steadfastness and patience. And these are not things that are in you. They're not. Each of these things, as we look to them, we say, I don't have that kind of patience. I don't have that kind of endurance that's going to that's gonna be able to walk through whatever God brings my way. A little over uh, two years ago now, I stood in a pulpit and I prayed, Lord, bring whatever you need to bring into my life to make me more like Jesus Christ. Whatever it is. And I literally said this. I said, whether it's sickness, whether it's the loss of one of my children, whether it's the death of my wife, whatever you need to bring, bring it into my life. And I meant it. And God said, okay. And brought things into my life that I I wasn't prepared for. Praise God. Because I was prepared for some things. In my strength, I could have handled some things. But He brought things that I couldn't handle. And He said, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Praise God. That He's going to bring this your way if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Because a God-honoring life is one of endurance. One that includes steadfastness and patience. So having seen point number one, we're on point number three. We've got five minutes left. So having seen number one, a God-honoring life is a life of awareness. It's a life that knows God's will. A life that seeks to know God's will as revealed in His Word. Not by experience. Not God's will that says, you know, I think God is telling me to go out and buy a brand new Harley. I would love to try to pull that one on you, right? But when I look at His Word, I say, God's not telling me that, right? Because I examine what I perceive to be God telling me against His Word. So primarily through His Word, I have knowledge of His will for my life. And a God-honoring life is a life of action. It's one of fruitfulness, growth, strength, and endurance. And now we turn to our third point in our sermon outline, and that is a God-honoring life is a life of appreciation, or a life of adoration, if you will. Why? Well, there are three reasons I want to zoom in on in this text. Number one, it says, He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. As sons and daughters, we have been made fit 
That's what it means, qualified. We've been made fit to inherit all that God has promised his children. Uh, Can you believe that? God has made you fit to inherit all that he's promised you, not the least of which is eternal life. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter just breaks out in praise when thinking about God here in 1 Peter. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So he says in Colossians, Paul says, He's qualified you to share in this inheritance of the saints of light. That's present tense. You are now qualified. You've been given this inheritance. And then in 1 Peter, he says it in future tense. He says, you've been given this this inheritance, this, this inheritance that's waiting for you. It's not yet fully realized. It's still future. And both are true. The inheritance is ours. It's been given. The deal is signed. It is done. But what is coming is the greater fulfillment of that inheritance, the experience of that inheritance. And right now we have the Holy Spirit as the down payment for that inheritance, as Ephesians 1, verses 13 through 14 tells us, it's the pledge of our inheritance. That we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us that says, that inheritance, it's coming. You've already gotten a piece of it. You've got a down payment of it, if you will. And you're going to experience it fully in the coming kingdom. Praise God for that. Praise God that all His promises will be fulfilled. So He's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. And number two, He's rescued us from the domain of darkness. We should live a life of appreciation because He's rescued us from the domain of darkness. You see, we were once slaves of unrighteousness. We were held captive by our sin. But Christ has set us free. Galatians 1, verses 3-5 through says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father, of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. He has rescued us from this evil age. He's rescued us from the penalty of sin. He's rescued us from the power of sin in our lives. That you no longer need to be held captive by sin. You've been rescued. And then number three, we should live a life of appreciation or adoration because He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, we have a new king. And even more, we're children of the king. We're no longer children of the devil serving the God of this world. We have now been rescued. And we are slaves of righteousness. We have been bought with a price. He transferred us from one kingdom to the next kingdom. How? By redemption. By buying us. You ask anybody who moves up here from away and they go, what are all these redemption centers? Right? And they're like, are they churches? What? Because the word redemption means to buy. They buy back our bottles and cans. Right? Christ bought us with a price. We're no longer slaves of corruption. We're slaves of righteousness. He owns us. You are not your own. He owns us. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, He owns you. You're you're a slave of one or the other. Either the devil or you're a slave of God. So we've been bought with a price. Ephesians 1, verses 7-8 through says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. 
If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, none of this applies to you. That you are a slave of Satan. You are a slave of the devil. But it needs not be that way. The price has been paid. It's like a gift sitting under a Christmas tree that you don't receive. That you just leave sitting there and you go, isn't that a beautiful gift? No, you need to receive the gift. Accept the gift and its effect on your life. And I can't tell you that you can do that through uh, walking the aisle or saying a prayer or any of those things. What I need to tell you is that you need to give your life to Christ. You need to submit your life to Christ. You need to repent, turn away from your sin, to change your mind about who Jesus is and seek to live for Him and for His glory. You need to live a God-honoring life. And the only way you will do that is not through your own strength, but by His grace. You just let that grace be poured down upon you. And the evidence of that grace is a God-honoring life. So how do we apply all of this? This is the line you've been waiting for. How do we apply all of this to our lives here at Harmony Bible Church? Well, we need to live a life of awareness. We need to know God's will. We need to know God's will individually. And we need to be aware of the fact that God desires for us to grow. We need to seek the advice of other believers. We need to pray to know God's will. We need to pray that we would grow. But most importantly, primarily, we need to study His Word. I understand that reading is not everybody's thing. God revealed Himself to us in a book. We need to study His Word. We need to live a life of awareness. We need to know God's will. So that when something comes into our lives, we say, yeah, I've got an answer for that. I had a professor who, you could ask him any question, he'd go, turn to James 1.7. Turn to Colossians 3.8. Turn to 2 Corinthians. And it's like, how do you do that? He studied God's Word. He was diligent to show himself approved. He lived a life of awareness. And we need to live lives of awareness. And we need to do that not only individually, but corporately. Make sure that God's Word is at the center of what we do, that we're encouraging each other, that we're asking each other, how are you doing in your Bible study? Not in a legalistic way, in a loving way. In a way that says, out of love, you need to be in God's Word. I need to be in God's Word. Let's, let's make sure that is real, that that's really happening in our lives. Number two, we need to live a life of action. That we can't just... Sit here and know God's will and not do God's will. We need to respond in obedience. That individually we must be fruitful. We must grow. We must have God's strength in us. We must endure. We must ask ourselves, are we living in that way? Are you fruitful? Are you growing? Are you strong? Are you enduring all of these trials? And then we need to do that corporately. We need to look out for each other. Are we doing this? Am I concerned that Dale might not be enduring? Am I concerned that that Susie may not be strong? We need to look out for these things and pray for each other and care for each other and hold each other accountable that we respond in obedience and that we respond in obedience together. And then number three, we need to live a life of adoration. The only way we'll ever do this is if we remember what Christ did for us. I believe the gospel motivates. That I can tell you what you need to do. I can say, you need to go out and witness. You need to go out and share your faith with your friends. You need to pray more. You need to read more. And it sounds like yada, 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 yada. Right? It's nothing. Until I say, the gospel 
is what needs to motivate you. Until I point you to Jesus Christ and what He did for you. Because I will fail you every time. So if I lay my expectations on you, guess what? They're not going to motivate you. You're going to be like, yeah, well, I know what He does. And I, I know what kind of life He lives. And I know how He responds to, to trials. Right? I will fail you, but Jesus did not fail you. We need to joyously be thankful for what He has done for us. We need to keep the Gospel ever in front of us daily and in front of us corporately. That's why I'll say it one more time, probably many more times. As long as there's breath in me, I will preach the Gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God in our lives. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace. God, I pray that You'd be with us, that You'd help us to live a life of awareness, a life that is aware of Your will, that is knowing Your will, that does not seek deeper knowledge through experience, but instead seeks knowledge through Your Word and Your will in our lives. God, that seeks not to know mystical experiences, but instead to know You better. God, I pray that we would live lives of action, that we would not be idle, but that instead we would see the fruit of grace growing in and out of our lives, that we would be bold and living for You, for Your glory, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling we have received. And God, I pray that we would live a life of adoration, that we would have the Gospel ever before us, that we would just preach the Gospel to ourselves and to each other and let the Gospel motivate us until that day when we fully inherit the promises that You have reserved for us in heaven. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Polly, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomason, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and for more information about Harmony Bible Church, visit www.harmonybible.org. God bless, and to God be the glory.